Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I have a lot of friends in Italy. They were telling me stories that were genuinely apocalyptic, things that we are not going to get to in this country. We cannot allow us to get to this level. Do not take this lightly because the stories that he has told me are gut-wrenching. So, you know, business evaporated, we immediately transitioned to curbside, and like three days later, I asked myself, why am I doing this? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is definitely Milwaukee. Conversations with the movers and shakers that put our slice of Wisconsin on the map in the worlds of entertainment, business, sports, and more. I'm Carl Deffenbaugh. A Milwaukee institution dealing with an unprecedented pandemic. Paul Bartolotta says in his lengthy and lauded career, he's never seen anything affect the restaurant industry like the coronavirus. While many of his peers are offering takeout or curbside pickup, the chef and co-founder of the Bartolotta Restaurant Group explains why they decided to close all of their locations and the changes we may see when things eventually open up again. Plus, incredible stories from a life spent in kitchens around the world. From his brother, Joe Bartolotta's lasting legacy here in Milwaukee, to serving LeBron James, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett in Vegas, to the perfect pasta and the one thing he won't eat. Settle in, because we have a full plate of topics to get to with two-time James Beard award-winning chef, Paul Bartolotta. We have the pleasure to be joined here by Paul Bartolotta uh, from Zoom and recordings and voice memos and all these things we're trying to figure out in this new normal, the world we are in these days. Paul, thank you for making this work and making this happen. Thank you for inviting me and having me. Um, excited to speak with you, not excited about where we are. I wish we were doing this in person or over a nice yeah. meal, but we'll have to uh, arrange that another time perhaps. Uh, before Hopefully we- soon. All the, all the different things I want to ask you, I want to chat with you about today. I figured I'd start with a fun one since my friend's Instagram accounts are just blowing up as they turn into amateur chefs and bakers and things like that. So from an actual professional, what is the best meal you've made yourself during this time and what might be the most surprising for folks that a uh, professional chef has eaten during this dire circumstances? Um, well, you know, uh, so my wife is a professional trained chef. And we have been in complete overdrive. So she's the boss at the house. Um, and so she's doing most of the cooking. The, the most interesting meal, you know, um, we, there's a recipe my father made uh, when I was a child that I taught my wife. And it was basic, basically called pasta con lenticchia. And it's pasta with lentils. And all you do is put a bag of lentils in a pot and boil them. Um, keep the water not too soupy but not dry and then break in a bunch of spaghetti and drop it in there and you end up with this really and then we finish it in a bowl with olive oil and salt and pepper and it has about five ingredients and my father used to tell me you know son when things were tough back in the old third ward back in the day we could one bag of lentils and a pound of pasta we could feed a family of six Um, so given that we're in this whole hunker down mode 
and we want to eat healthier and we want to do stuff that we can, you know, enjoy as a family. Um, my, my wife resurrected this dish. We've had it three times now since we've been in uh, quarantine or bunker state. I'm going to have so, to write that down once we get done with this. That's a yeah, bag idea. of lentils and a pound of pasta and boil it and you're done. Keep it going nice. for a while. It's we know for so many industries, and certainly the restaurant industry, these are uh, really unprecedented times. You guys, uh, I know, made the decision after doing curbside pickup for a little bit, which many others are doing, to just close. And from what I've read from you, that was less of a business decision and more just a community health decision. You're so closely tied with Italy and friends there kind of warned you about what it was like over there as things were moving to the U.S. So what went into that decision? I imagine it, it was both hard and maybe easy at the same time. So, you know, the, the answer is um, really stems from our values. Uh, when my brother and I uh, founded the company 27 years ago, we asked ourselves what we, why we were doing what we were doing. And we care about people and for people. That's what we do. Um, we grew up in a household where there were always boarders living in our home that were on, on struggling in difficult times. One had a divorce, another had cancer and had no family members here. And my dad would say, come and move in with us. And we would, and, and my dad would be like, son, you're sleeping in the other bedroom. You're giving up your room. And, and this didn't last like for a week. This was months, if not years, where we had boarders living in our home. Um, and it goes to the values that we grew up with. Um, Joe, Maria, Felicia, and I, it was just like, that's who we were as a family, you know? And even though we didn't have a lot, it was, it was about the dining room table, whatever food was there. And so those values sort of permeated into our business mindset and mentality. And it began with, we care for our employees. We care about our guests intimately, carefully, delicately, um, you know, authentically, sincerely. We care about the stakeholders, whether it be our landlords or our, our vendors or, or people that we interact with on a daily basis. We operate from this position of, if we care for them, they'll care for us. Um, we care about our community, so we were actively and have always been actively involved in our community. And lastly, we need to be good financial stewards or care for the bottom line, you know, take care of it. Um, so it was a decision that was really um, in keeping with our values. Number one, we have to put our employees first. Um, they have been first. They remain first. And, um, you know, I had, as you, as you mentioned, I have a lot of friends in Italy. Um, that I've had for a lot of years. My daughter went to high school there. I bought all my fish for my Vegas restaurant there. Um, and I've been living on and off in Italy almost my whole life. And they were telling me stories that were <clears throat> genuinely apocalyptic, things that, that we don't even want to, we're, we're, we are not going to get to in this country. We cannot allow us to get to this level. And um, hearing those stories and my telling, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make these adjustments. And he said, Paul, you know, one of my buddies, Otavio said to me, Paul, he's like, you're talking just like we were five weeks ago. Listen to what I'm telling you. I'm a, I'm a sage guy. I'm a good businessman. You know this. I said, yeah, I do. And he's like, trust me, this was like locusts just landing in our, on us. So I don't want to be overly dramatic to your, your, your viewers and your, your, your listeners, but I do want to be, I do want to make up somewhat of a statement do not underestimate this. Do not take this lightly because the stories that he has told me are gut wrenching. And, and I just, and I know them to be true. 
Uh, and his like sitting out in his garden with his phone saying, what do you hear? And I'm like, birds chirping. He said, no, what else do you hear? I said, ambulances. He goes, yes, dying or dead. And that was like, like it descended on my soul thinking, okay, so, you know, business evaporated. We immediately transitioned to curbside. And like three days later, I asked myself, why am I doing this? Because I'm giving employee meals more than serving the customer. It was a chance for those employees that were hourlies that were displaced to come and pick up a meal. So I said, well, what can we do? So I just decided, you know, even the, the, the employees that were coming to do curbside with all the best intentions were at an additional risk that was absolutely unnecessary. So for me, I don't judge what other people do. Um, many people are doing curbside because they're either helping their local area or because they need some income to keep the lights on. I get it. But for me, my decision was really grounded in if I have one employee that dies because I'm trying to serve food, if I have one employee that gets really, really sick, I'm going to be thinking about that. So it's like, done. We're done. So we closed the restaurants after three days of curbside. Um, didn't even get a chance to see the value of it. And then we moved immediately to emptying out all of our walk-ins and all of our freezers and all of our storerooms and giving all the food away. We did a food, a food drive um, for all of our employees, gave away several weeks of food at a time and said, stay home, please do me one favor, stay home. Uh, and it was about, in these times, it's about shelter, it's about food, it's about medicine. So we extended health benefits um, and we gave them as much food as we could. Um, and we said, stay home until this is over. We want you back, we need you back, and we want you healthy. And that was it. It really wasn't much more than that. Was it a good business decision? Kind of a head scratcher. Um, maybe not the best business decision, but as you said, I felt it deeply that it was the right decision. And so I'm only advocating. I, no one wants to reopen more than me. Trust me. No one wants to call on my staff and say, come in, let's get back to work. I mean, let's start cooking. Let's start serving. Let's start cleaning. But... Um, Let's do it when it's time, because another week or two, another three weeks, as terrible as it is, let's come back when we have taken the oxygen out of this fire, yeah. when we have literally like snuffed it out, rather than let it be a smoldering forest fire that then reignites. Let's just not do that. That's well said. I'm sure, um, I mean, there's so much unknown. No one really knows timeline or what things will exactly look like or be allowed. But what have you kind of thought about how the, the rollback, the reopening of all of your wonderful restaurants will look or, or will shift after this? We, um, so there's been a lot of, of interesting conversations. So first we went to, what do we do? No more, you know, all the events are canceling for all of our banquet event places. Then it was, oh, you know, people are skittish about going out. And then, well, is the governor going to shut us down? I'm like, no, no, we're going to shut us down. So we shut down. So then we transitioned to, you know, doing whatever we could do to sort of make sure that our employees were okay. And then now we've shifted our mindset to <clears throat> we're down to just a handful of people. I mean, um, you know, we've gone from 900 plus and 960 employees to 12. And they're the essentials who are running, get, making sure all of our basic loans are in place that are making sure um, our HR department is active so we can offer any support to our employees. 
for unemployment or COBRA or any different things that they may be looking at or, or uh, some people that are in FMLA. So we are actively supporting our employees. Um, and then a couple of us basically on preparing to model to turn the lights back on again. And so yeah, along those lines, um, there's a lot of conversation about opening outdoor places first. Kind of makes sense to me. There's been much conversation and in other countries that I've been reading about and that I have friends. Um, Sweden is an excellent example where um, they, you know, created these really intense barriers, plexiglass barriers between tables and, um, and, and use social distancing very effectively. So I'm, I'm sure that's going to be the reality. I can't imagine having a Harbor House 260-seat uh, restaurant open up with 260 seats full. I mean, that would make me very happy conceptually, um, probably as a businessman, but um, I think we're inevitably going to be a smaller size restaurant. I think that the, the distances between tables and the spatial reservations is going to change. Um, so it will be a ramp up for sure. It won't just be lights on and full on. Um, you know, I, um, I, we kept about four people in our sales team, for example, um, why? Well, we want to book future business, you know, for events and things going on in, in the future because we will be back. When I whittled it down from a large group to just four, all of a sudden I funneled all this information, all these calls and whatever. And everybody, everybody's event is the most important event in their life. And, yes. and it's true whether I'm running a corporate sales meeting or it's my wedding, it's the most important day of my life, or it's or it's a nonprofit, or it's a prom, or a graduation, and they're all booked in our banquet events, all of a sudden, my team is like air traffic control with, you know, with all these planes in the air, and they're like, okay, we just lost half of our landing pads because the next couple of months evaporated, so how do we move all these flights that are already up in the air, coupled with those that are already booked, coupled with those that are inquiring, and how do we find a landing pad for all of these events? And again, you want to talk about a head-scratcher. Um, so it's, it's complicated. Um, it's a lot for the team to navigate. So, um, my sister Maria is uh, with a great team is like spearheading it. And I figured if anybody's going to be angry with her, I said, it's going to be a Bartle on the phone. <laughs> so <laughs> like, so my sister's like, Oh, great. Thanks. And I said, one step away from me, Maria. So sure she appreciates that. Yeah. So we're going to, no, but we're going to take ownership. We're, we've created some really, thoughtful accommodation policies to accommodate. Um, and, um, you know, we're hoping that people understand that wh why would I not want to do everything I can to make you happy? But this process of rebooking hundreds of events with a limited number of dates, it's going to be imperfect and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be, it's going to be work and it's going to be challenging. And, you know, we care about our clients uh, and we're going to try to do everything we can to make this as flawless. But it's it's just there's just one example under a magnifying glass um, of how complicated the world has become almost overnight. Yeah, it's it, is, it is pretty wild. That is for sure. And there's so many unknowns still. I'll hopefully get into maybe some simpler answers here as I did want to <laughs> touch on some of the fun stuff, some of the rise of uh, the Bartolotta Restaurant Group over the decades and what you and your brother and your family have done for this. Scene. I'd like to talk about fun stuff too. How about yeah, okay. Okay. Let's do it. Let's get into the good stuff. Um, I'd be curious about this. All you guys growing up in the Milwaukee area, Tosa, and then you started in restaurants at an early age, get to travel and train and learn all across the country, all across the world. 
what is maybe one lesson, one takeaway that's always stuck with you from those early years as you're figuring yourself out in this industry? Well, boy, there are so many. Um, I think probably mentorship and gratitude. Um, you know, anyone who's had any material success in their life, it didn't happen because they were amazing. It happened because someone along the line, if you're an athlete, it was that grade school or high school coach um, that opened the door and really pushed you to find your best. Um, we've all, no one gets anywhere. So I always liken it to somebody opens a door a little bit and it's up to you to run through that door. And so I would say mentorship. I think that we, we have mentors in so many ways that we don't know and identify until we get a little bit older and we start reflecting on our past that, you know, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for this person who called this person. I wouldn't be here. You know, you wouldn't be a, an important newscaster unless some point along the road there was a mentor, there was someone that got you that interview, and then it was up to you to, like, interview well. Or, to, or it just – we're all at that point in our lives where – so I think mentorship is the, is the most part. And I always say, you know, our job is to pay it forward. Yeah. You know? That speaks to the, the number of chefs in Milwaukee who have come up through your system then and now run in their own places as well. All that, all that competition. Yeah, right. What are you doing to yourself now? Uh, and they're good. They're <laughs> good. There's a lot of great talent in the city. And, you know, we like to think that we have a little bit of a connection to that. Um, uh, we're, we're proud of that fact. Sometimes they're always nipping at our heels. So we, you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, there are some that want to stay within our family because they find this environment right for them. There are others that entrepreneurially want to be out and, and challenge themselves and fly on their own. And that's great too. And many of them have actually, a number of them have actually called and said, you know, what should I do? What's going on? Um, and we've offered whatever advice we could, but yeah, we, we think that we've had had an impact on that. There are a lot of young chefs that, um, that as I look around, uh, are descendants. From what I've read, uh, both you and your brother kind of spoke to your dad saying initially when you opened the first restaurant in 93, don't do this. Milwaukee's maybe not the place for it. It was a slower moving city, things like that. Has what Bartolotta's has become in the city even surpassed, even surprised you from what you, you hoped and dreamed maybe in those early years? Well, you know, when, when my brother called me and asked to help with a, open a restaurant here, um, I was already in Chicago. I had been traveling in and I'd been cooking in Italy for seven and a half years. I'd been in New York for almost, almost five years. Uh, and I said to my brother, I said, you know, Joe, I don't really think there's much of a market in Milwaukee. And my brother's like, bro, I'm telling you, there's a market here. I'm like, Joe, there are not a lot of restaurants in Milwaukee, but that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm like, you know, if there was such a great market, Joe, it would have been exploited. It's not Chicago. And he's like, but we can be. What if we could? And uh, up on the wall here in our office, which is a memorial that we put up for my brother, um, we put that quote, what if we could? Um, and it's just like the quintessential Joe, um, like seeing what other people didn't see. And, um, and you know, and, and actually we're, we're now coming up uh, on a one-year anniversary of his, uh, his passing. And um, pretty soon, and a few weeks. And... Uh, and, you know, you think about it and you realize, you know, he saw the, the possibilities in this town. And so I brought the, I guess, the culinary side, some of the big city travels and experience to it. 
But to his credit, he lived it every day, and we built um, a fantastic team of people, um, most of which, almost all of which are still part of our team and our family, uh, our restaurant family. And, um, and they, live, they live by those values. And it's, um, yeah, I don't think that we, we didn't get into it thinking we built so many restaurants. <clears throat> but what we did do is we just loved creating and building. And so as soon as there was an opportunity to do something new and different, we were on to that, that new exciting challenge. My brother called it his shiny spoon. As soon as there's a shiny spoon, a chance to build another restaurant, he was all over it. So, um, yeah, I think it certainly surpassed what we planned. Um, and I would also say that um, as we grew, uh, hasn't come without hiccups, hasn't come without some fumbles and some you know, tripping and falling. Um, and, and it's a terribly difficult business. Um, you're manufacturing a variable. You're only as good as your least trained employee, whether it's a hostess that hasn't trained well or is rude or a dishwasher doesn't clean things correctly, whether it's a cook that isn't tasting and seasoning their food. I mean, you have so many opportunities in a restaurant to, to make things that didn't work out that it becomes a little bit of a ballet, a little bit of a choreography. And what makes it so exciting is that it's about people and like getting this team to gel and getting them all to like work with this magic that happens in a restaurant. And, you know, we know we're not perfect, but I tell you, we get up every day trying to be perfect. And every day we go home and we think, okay, we don't remember the 300 customers that were happy tonight. We remember that one person who they waited too long for an appetizer. The server forgot to bring their cocktail in time. You know, the, the, you know, the, the steak that was overcooked. And yet that's what we walk home with. We remember those things that weren't perfect. And then we get up the next day and say, we're going to do better tomorrow. Uh, unfortunately, that's probably the way for a lot of us, right? I'm not sure it's the healthiest way to uh, live, but keeps you keeps you grinding and keeps you going as well. You mentioned um, the anniversary coming up. I was going to ask you about that. Anything in particular that that has really stuck with you over the past year or so, a memory, a story that either you experienced or you heard that day or in those days afterwards? Uh, after my brother's passing, yeah. I have to say the outpour of love uh, from the community was pretty remarkable um, and is. Um, to this day, I get random calls from guys who said, I don't know if you remember me, but you know, I met you here when you were at Lake Park with your brother having dinner, or I met you here when you did this dinner and you were in town from Vegas or whatever. And, um, and it's just, um, it's genuine. And so probably um, the fact that my brother's generosity as a human was way greater than a restaurateur. It's just what he did, but that's not who he was. And so I, I reiterate to our team all the time that um, we're just in the restaurant business, but that's not really who we are. So I think that that sums it up. I think those are our values that we try to live by. How has, have you had to change? Have you had to grow as a, as a leader, as an owner here? Because my understanding is that, like you said, he was kind of the vision. He was the boots on the ground as you were doing more of the, the culinary side and, and opening your own and doing your own restaurants across the country as well. So how has it changed since his passing that you've had to take on maybe both roles? We would not be the organization we are without my brother Joe and the team that, that has surrounded him and us all these years, um, for sure. Um, I mean, I like to think I was part of it from the inception um, and was funneling up the culinary side, but 
Additionally, I opted and I had the luxury, the freedom to spend almost 10 years with Levy, Levy restaurants in Chicago at their flagship Spiaggia. Um, and even when it, this was in the early 90s, and that was when we were before we even started the company. Um, and that at the time was already a $300 million restaurant company. And it was a big organization. It was uh, two brothers, Mark and Larry Levy, working together. And it was a little bit of a model of saying, hey, you know, my brother and I, one day we should work together. And it was something we always talked about when we would exchange letters when I was back in Italy. We weren't emailing, we were writing letters, you know, with like a stamp on it. You remember those things? You Never heard of it. it. Yeah. You know, and it take about a week to get there, 10 days. Um, and, and we would have these letters, and I have some of them, where we would talk about maybe one day doing something together. Well, that actually ended up happening. And my experience 10 years at Levy and then 11 years at Win Las Vegas was really important for me, but I also think, um, and I'm seeing it now probably more than ever, the benefit of working for such a big company talks to you about organization, process, um, you know, systems, um, and those are all things that when you, when you take the foundation of what we have now and say, where is the opportunity for improvement for our organization, it is about process and, sim- and systems more than it is a change in, in anything that is cultural. And if we can find more effective, more efficient, better ways of doing things and having been exposed to high performance organizations like Levy, but Win was like a masterclass. Um, I have been bringing those experiences to our team. Um, and organizationally, I think that we, and I couldn't be more proud of how everyone in this moment of crisis just came together and gelled and how everybody responded. The, the leadership team of the company, um, hats off, our, our GMs and our chefs, reaching out, keeping in contact with their employees. It just, it just shows that it sort of trickles down. So I think that it will always be the same culture that we've always had. But I think as we evolve, I think we're just going to do nothing but get better and better and better. And it has certainly challenged me to juggle between, you know, merely running, um, you know, a kitchen or a business to the entire enterprise. And, you know, I've been a part of it since the beginning. My brother and I were the final decision makers on all macro decisions that we made, but we already have a lot of amazing people who know to do the day to day. Kind of shows what the foundation was that was built there for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, since you have so much experience around the world and in some of those big cities and, and you guys have done so much to, to put Milwaukee's dining scene on the map a little bit, what is, uh, I'm sure there's lots of differences between working in a New York city or Vegas and Milwaukee, but what is one real positive of the world here, having a restaurant here in Milwaukee that you don't find in, in one of those larger cities or more established? Well, you know, actually I would say that um, we are working actively to grow our community. The DNC coming here, the Ryder Cup, the triathlon, all the things that, that visit Milwaukee is working so hard to promote our city um, and doing such a great job at, um, um, I, I'm with the, uh, MMAC as well, uh, the Milwaukee Metron uh, Association of Commerce. So we are very active in promoting business and development and improving the community and creating jobs. So as I look at the city, 
we're looking to do and evolve like all those other cities. But what's unique about Milwaukee is that, and my brother and I had seen this, we have seen economic downturns um, post 9-11, um, obviously 08, 09, nothing like this, by the way, um, nothing like this. But what ended up happening is you found that the cities that had only international travel, when tourism dries up in New York, and it'll be a while, it's a big part of their economy. We want it to be a bigger part of our economy, but it's not as though it's our main form of sustenance. Italy, for example, parts of Italy literally survive on tourism. It's one of the most toured places in the world. Can you imagine how long it'll be before it'll be back? And there'll be people comfortable going to Italy. So while we are looking to become more of a destination because there's so much great that's happening here. One of the advantages we have is that we are a community within a community and therefore we're all part of the same thing. We're all in this together. And as a smaller community, we rebound faster because we're not dependent on other economies to support ours. We are a self-sustaining economy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's well said. And I think it's great. No, no, we want to grow. Yeah. We're not done as a city. We're just getting better and better, of course. But, but we feel it less tourism. You know, Vegas, where I used to be, it's a wasteland right now. You drive down the strip, my friends are telling me, it's like, no cars. All the casinos are, are lights out. It's, it's a ghost town. It's sad. Um, you know, uh, Chicago, New York, you know, driving down, you know, looking at these things on TV, looking at Times Square, empty. It's crazy. We had something on the news this morning, O'Hare, just empty. I've never seen it like that. I used to, used to dream that the airport would be like that. And unfortunately got our wish, but not in the yeah, way. Why, wanted, when, right? I, when I'm running late for a flight, yeah, right. O'Hare, it's an international <laughs> flight or something. And I get there and it's just like, Oh my gosh, I can't, I'm stuck in traffic. Um, I did want to do uh, just a, a few quick hitters, some fun stuff here as well, sure. uh, as we're getting a little short on time, but appreciate you sharing so much with us. You mentioned Vegas and uh, all that time that you spent there, Ristorante, Damar, at the Wynn, flying in apparently fish every day from Italy, the freshest fish you could get from over there. What was, what was a, a great Vegas story? I know most of the stuff stays in Vegas, right? That's the thing. But what is something that uh, was only true about working in a restaurant in Vegas? A person you had an interaction with, a story that comes to mind. Oh, gosh. I, one of the funny ones I, I would probably say, and it's funny because he called me not that long ago, but um, um, there are so many stories that are just you know crazy. But Steve Wynn had a, a Rolodex of people that were his friends. Um, and... Um, but I think one of the most special stories was Team USA used to practice uh, uh, in advance of the Olympics, and they would set up gyms and basketball courts in the ballrooms, and we would host the team. And I believe it was back when Coach K was our coach. But I'll never forget one day they're like, oh, the Team USA just came in, and they're at Table 75, which is this big table out by the cabanas, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and LeBron James was there. And he wasn't old enough to drink, so he ordered like a pitcher of Sprite. And it just seemed like you got this mammoth man, right, who, who you would think would be whatever. And then Reese, then he used to come back often. And now um, actually uh, near the end of his season last year, he wasn't very actively playing because they were sort of done and we were doing great. And, um, and uh, his manager called the restaurant and said, hey, listen, LeBron wants to get some food to go. Uh, can you hook him up? I'm like, I got it. No problem. What does he want? Um, so, you know, we've had, um, I mean, 
having a dinner. I mean, I've got another great story. It was just one night. I'm like, oh, there's a private, Mr. Wynn booked a private party room downstairs. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be just a few guests that want a private space. I'm like, okay. So, you know, the table was seated. My manager goes, you might want to go out and say hello. And I go out there and it's like, it was uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett and LeBron James, because apparently he does investing with them and they're like on these things together. And you're just kind of scratching your head. And you're like, Okay, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Kind of, you know, you two guys I can kind of see hanging out, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking to figure this all out. Um, so, yeah, there are these um, many incredibly uh, ridiculous stories of, you know, gamblers coming in with backpacks full of money. Uh, one night I had a, um, I had a Russian guy on New Year's Eve spend $110,000 on dinner. I mean, oh how do you do that? Gosh. How do you do that? And then at the end of the dinner, he opened his back. I started putting money on the table. I'm like, I got to call security and get a camera here and count this. We can't touch your money. And he's like, well, I'll be paying cash. I'm like, okay, you know, let me call, let me call uh, security. And they brought in these portable cameras and a money counting machine. And before the guy could leave, we had to count the money. It's just, it's the things you hear and say, Pretty crazy. That's insane. Pretty yeah, that, crazy. That probably doesn't happen here in Milwaukee too often, I would guess then, but that's all right. Uh, but it could. You never yeah, know. Never could. It could. The dinner too, that's like that game where you pick your dinner party guests, except they actually have it in reality. And, and there, are, there are many, um, many, many great um, fun stories. But at the end of the day, um, it's um, the restaurants and you just – it's great because you get to meet a lot of really interesting people. The, the who's who uh, of Milwaukee come into our restaurant and that's really exciting, but so is the first date, maybe more exciting. So is the couple who saved their money to come to one of our restaurants. Cause it's a big outing for them. That's important. You know, so we often in our pre-shifts talk about how easy it is to treat a, a wedding. Like, Oh, it's a BEO. It's a banquet event order. It's a BEO. No, it's that couple's most important day of their entire life. It's not just another function sheet that you have that shows what's going on. No, this is the most important day of their lives. Let's put the weight on how important this is for them. Let's not treat it like business as usual. It's their day. So we work hard at trying to, you know, keep the feet on the ground. And remember, we're just running restaurants. We're just, we get, we get, we're blessed to be given the opportunity to play a small part in people's lives at that at that life stage or that life moment that we're able to be part of that and that's a responsibility in of itself but it's also a great pleasure yeah all right i'll do uh, a couple quick hitters here uh okay. kind of going around some of your your favorite foods your favorite ingredients things like that one type of pasta that you think just is perfect goes with with so much thick spaghetti is the greatest pasta ever the thickest spaghetti there is no greater noodle on the planet then spaghetti end of story full stop done you've uh i've heard you say that cumin or cumin is is the one thing that you don't really eat so what is one ingredient or a goat unless you have a i don't have no idea how you know that honestly (laughs) i eat almost everything almost everything but cumin is a rough one for me i try to do my research so there i got that is crazy (laughs) that you know that well, what is uh, what is maybe a little, a it's a little creepy, actually. I, yeah, I promise I wasn't following you. Uh, what is a go-to spice or ingredient that you think uh, you have to have that, that is one of your favorites? Um, I think one of the most flexible herbs would probably be rosemary. 
uh, and sage. Um, rosemary and sage are Italianissimi, um, they're like very popular in Italian cooking, but they are throughout the world and you find it in all the Mediterranean basins. So, you know, probably rosemary and sage. Very nice. Uh, I'm asking this next one because a, a story I did, I think when you guys were switching over Mr. B's up in Mequon, was arguably one of the best steaks, maybe the best one I've had, at least the one that I remember. So pick uh, the kind of steak, the cut of meat, if there's a topping or not, if you like something on there, and then uh, the sides and the wine for the best steak. So easy, easy, easy. Ribeye, end of story, we're done. Um, my favorite cut of meat is the ribeye. Um, favorite sides, um, I like bitter. Um, Americans do well with sweet and salty. And we are evolving as a culture to appreciate higher levels of acidity and bitter. So I, I like bitter things. So I like bitter greens. So I like dandelion greens or broccoli rob. Um, so for me, bitter greens. Hmm. Nice. And, and then a, a wine to go with it? Um, you know, for me, I need wines that are mature. Um, a little tip for your viewership. If you have red wines that are younger, don't be shy. Open them up. Pour them into a big pitcher. Shake them around a little. Let them get some air because even a younger wine will drink way better when it's have when it's been given some air. So if you're having wine with dinner tonight, open it up an hour before dinner, two hours before dinner. Pour it into a pitcher or an open mouth bug. Get some aeration to it. Um, for me, it's about having wines that are old school, earthy, funky, uh, and that are mature enough that or have been aerated so that it's a, it's an elegant drink. I, I'm not a big fan of very tannic wines. Gotcha. How about a uh, type of food that you can't cook or at least don't cook well, but you love that, that you will go out of your way to order uh, from a great place or, or seek out? Um, I love Asian food in general. So um, Chinese, Japanese, Thai, Korean, my wife is Korean, love Korean food. So um, Asian food for sure, not my specialty. We have a handful of chefs in the company um, who are passionate about Asian food and they they let some of these items sort of seep into some of our menus and they're really good at it. Um, we haven't done an Asian restaurant, maybe one day, maybe an Asian fusion kind of concept, who knows? Um, well, we'll be back just so you know, planning the new things. Um, we have a whole bunch of concept we haven't done yet. Um, so uh, probably Asian. Well, I could do this forever, but that was kind of going to be my last question. So I'll just end it with this. When we finally get things open again, when we're ready to roll, what is the, uh, the place, the meal that you would like people's first reintroduction to Bartolotta's to be once we're, we're back and rolling? Well, we've actually had a lot of conversations and it'd be, it'd be difficult to find a more spectacular place than along the lake at, and in touch with nature like Harbor House. Um, just because of it's just the beauty of being out on the pier and looking at the skyline and the lake and nature and looking at our fabulous city and watching it come back alive. But then personally, you know, 1993, my brother and I, two little wet behind the ear boys, decided to open a little restaurant in Wauwatosa and it was 52 seats. We borrowed from friends and family. We had one local restaurateur, Joe DeRosa, who asked us, do we have all of our money raised? And we're like, no. And Joe DeRosa said, let, us, let me give you the rest of the money. And he took a minority stake. I mean, who does that? Yeah. And Joe DeRosa. And, and so probably emotionally, Ristorante Bartolota in 1993, 
um, in Wauwatosa would be the place. Um, I love all, I mean, it's like saying, what's your favorite child? We love them. (laughs) But no matter how much you guys have grown, it all goes back to that. Paul, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you for including me. Stay safe. We love you, Milwaukee. We'll be back. A thank you once again to Paul for carving out some time for us. And a thank you to the two folks you don't hear from behind the scenes. That would be Dave Machuda and Sarah Smith, who do so much to make this podcast, Definitely Milwaukee, happen. Same goes for the Investigators podcast here at Fox 6, Open Record, and they're doing daily episodes during the coronavirus pandemic. You can find episodes of both Definitely Milwaukee and Open Record on fox6now.com or any of your favorite podcast streaming platforms. And please make sure to leave us a rating and a review as well.